The thoughts and opinions on Just Some Podcast are of the hosts and guests and do not represent the views of organizations that employ them or they volunteer for. They are also not responsible for spontaneous black holes or nuclear wars that may occur. You have been warned. You're listening to Just Some Podcasts, and here's your hosts, Ben and Tom. Hello, everybody. This is Tom, along with Ben, and I'm welcoming you to Just Some Podcasts for Advanced Practitioners. This is episode four on concussions. So, Tom, how was your week? So far, so good. Um, I have a split rotation, so I actually just began my week, so I can't complain yet. Anything fun this week? Actually, dealt with several uh, cases, or I shouldn't say cases, but had several issues related to our topic tonight. So I was uh, happy to do all the research and learn a little bit and be able to apply it a little better at my job. I haven't seen a whole lot of concussions so far. I mean, knock on wood. But like right now, we got hand, foot, and mouth just running rampant, and we are gearing up for flu season flu season i i almost think i can feel the future episode when you say it like that oh i'm sure there will be a future episode but uh now basically this week uh i think all sorts of children coming back to school and starting sports parents are more aware because of the nfl campaign about concussions so now Anytime anybody has any sort of injury, they want checked out, which is a good thing. I'm I'm saying I'm glad parents are being proactive, but it certainly has made the uh, call volume on this type of injury higher. Uh, ben, just at the beginning of this episode, I'd like to throw a couple shout-outs uh, specific for this episode. First would be to a fellow nurse practitioner named Amanda. She currently works in neurology and was a great resource and tool for this. So if you take a listen, Amanda, I just wanted you to know we appreciate it. Also, Dr. Little over at EM Over Easy podcast, a podcast specifically for emergency medicine. He went out of his way to give me some tips and pointers and has been listening to the broadcast. So I hope everyone, if you're in emergency medicine, gives them a listen and lets me know so I can get to Dr. Little and let him know what our... uh, followers think yeah i actually had an opportunity to listen to their most recent episode i was listening to it today actually really good stuff i was very impressed so i would highly suggest that people give that show a listen i've actually worked with a couple of those physicians great clinicians always a good time in the uh, er working with them if you were going to be working with a set of doctors you couldn't ask for anything better so big shout out to those guys and thanks for all their help But, Ben, what's the story this week? Well, for stories that you may have missed, this actually just came out today and is in regards... Well, then we definitely missed it. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Tom. This is in regards to all those wonderful DOT physicals that we do, if you're DOT certified. I am. Tom, I know you're working on getting DOT certified. That's the plan. Well, one of the new final rules that come out today, and will take effect 60 days from today, so we're talking November 19th, is to allow patients who are insulin-treated diabetics 
to be certified for DOTs. Previously, any time that they were an insulin-dependent diabetic, unless they had the specific federal exemption, it was pretty much a no-go. There was only a few no-gos in DOT, seizures, having one eye, and insulin-dependent diabetes were pretty much the, the three big ones that were pretty much an automatic no-go. So do you think there's any reason why operating a 20,000-pound vehicle going 70 miles an hour, those might be no-gos? Well, I can see the issues with that, yeah, particularly with the seizures and the one eye. I mean, you kind of want to have good peripheral vision uh, on both sides of your body. Yeah, depth perception might be helpful, too. But in reading the final rule, if you want to read the entire thing, we can certainly throw a link up on some of our social media. But it is about 145 pages, so I'm going to summarize, because otherwise we'd be here for four hours. The treating clinician has to provide information to the medical examiner that basically says that they're on a stable insulin regimen and they're in proper control of their diabetes. They also have to bring in the preceding three months of blood glucose self-monitoring records while being treated. And upon receipt of all of that and upon completion of the original medical exam, then they can be certified for up to 12 months. Some of that also has to state that they, they being the treating clinician, is able to say that they have not had any severe hypoglycemic episodes during the last 12 months. You know, I actually have neighbors that this is the reason they are no longer a truck driving team is because one of them came down, or shouldn't say came down with, one of them is now a type 1 diabetic. So, that, go so on, they caught I see the diabetes? <laughs> yes. Uh, you're probably going to want to have to, yeah, we're all mumbled at the moment. <laughs> yeah, um, so yes, good friend. They actually enjoyed being truck drivers. He became type 1 diabetic and obviously is no-go. So I haven't even had a chance to see them today, otherwise I'd have uh, brought it up. Here's my question, and it's half joking and it's half not. So it it's easy to control, I shouldn't say easy, it's easier to control your blood sugar when you're in a controlled setting what happens when you're down the gummy bear aisle at a flying j in the middle of nowhere at 2 a.m just saying that sugar starts looking real good well i'm gonna make an assumption here that most diabetics that are getting their dot certification are probably going to make well we hope they make better decisions in regards to certain things that they should eat much like me being an asthmatic I'm not going to run out and run a marathon tomorrow. But you could. Not if I wanted to survive. Well, that's where we're really at with this. I'm actually glad if they have all the supporting evidence and they can support this to be able to let these guys do it. I just, I understand there's a certain amount of trepidation with this decision, so. Yeah, I was kind of surprised to see it. I mean, I, I understand, and I do know that there are patients who are treated with, you know, particularly long-acting insulins that are very stable with their regimens and don't have the bouncing glycemic problems. And so in that case, I certainly think that it is a viable option. And to be fair, pretty soon semi-trucks are going to drive themselves. That's a gig I want. You want to be a semi-truck that drives itself? No, I want to be the guy that sits in the semi-truck while it drives itself. Glad you went to all those years of school for that then, Tom. <laughs> well, you got to have goals, my friend. you got to have goals. So if anybody else has any shout-outs, information they want to know, future topics or questions they want us to answer at some time, you can reach us on any of our, any of our various social media accounts, including our website, our Instagram, our Twitter, 
or our Facebook, which are at Just Some Podcast or Just Some Podcast for Advanced Practitioners. Yeah, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, at Just Some Podcast, the website, www.justsomepodcast.com. And I will say here, since Facebook is apparently suppressing our Facebook page currently because they want me to buy an ad, we have started an official Just Some Podcast for Advanced Practitioners Facebook group. What this is going to allow you to do is interact directly with us. Tom and I are going to be in that group and very active and responding to any comments that are in there. But it's also going to give you some exclusive content that we're not going to show on the podcast or we're not going to give on the podcast. So maybe we're going to do a video cast and we can do that Facebook Live just in the group. Maybe we'll do some Q&As. Maybe we'll get good and liquored up and just have an interesting Q&A session. By the way, uh, Ben and I have actually done a Facebook Live podcast before while being held hostage in the Columbus Zoo in Columbus, Ohio. So we do have experience with this topic. And also I'd like to mention it was a great idea, but now that Ben has made Google or, I'm sorry, Facebook angry, there's no way that we're going to probably live through the night, let alone continue this podcast. But it was okay for the Russians. <laughs> As long as you're not in Oklahoma, that's all that counts. Here we go with Oklahoma again. I love my friends down in Oklahoma. I just think that they're too busy uh, chasing squatches. So I don't really have to worry about too many of them listening to this podcast. But speaking of this podcast, let's get back on track. The uh, topic tonight, concussions. And honestly, having probably suffered through a couple in my high school football career, and this is before the importance of it that explains so much <laughs> it could that's why i forgot a uh, quadratic formula that one time i'm telling you right now i knew it and then i didn't okay that's not my fault at all but concussions especially in our youth athletes that us as advanced practitioners are probably going to be treating or seeing uh, most likely in the clinics or er's this is a really important topic for us to understand and while we may not get into the mega depth of the subject matter that we have in front of us, we are going to try and cover at least the basics that we feel like all advanced practitioners should have a basic grasp on. Yeah, and this is something that, I mean, I think the education on this is evolving yearly. I mean, if you look back, like you said, back before they thought concussions were a real big deal, you can get your bell rung and the coach would tell you, ah, shake it off, and you'd you know, go on with what you were doing. This is no joke. I was playing in a football game one time. I got hit so hard that I shouldn't say I was part of the collision. And when we all came to, I was actually slightly colorblind for a minute. And knowing what we know now, I probably should have been out of the game. <laughs> but coach was like, rub some dirt on it and get back out there. You don't need to see colors in order to hit them. That is correct. But I also needed to remember I was on a football field, which also took about 30 seconds. So knowing what I know now, I'm pretty sure we shouldn't have uh, been playing the rest of that game. And you do see with uh, sports and even like sports entertainment like professional wrestling, I mean, things have changed significantly. I mean, you know, they used to, years ago, you'd take a chair shot to the head numerous times, and you don't see that anymore because they are trying to limit the amount of time that, you know, you're getting your head knocked around. You legitimately just said wrestling with an A. Well, you know, I'm close to Oklahoma. Squatch. So let's get into this. Uh, there are a couple really good tools that, that were pointed out to me 
and they are free as far as I can tell. Everything I was able to find on them, I got the information for me for free, and I didn't have to do anything special. There is the CDC, of course, our brothers and sisters at the CDC fighting the good fight. They have what they call the ACE tool, which is the acute concussion evaluation form. The Cleveland Clinic has an extensive amount of information on concussions and children's uh, hospital also has an extensive amount of information available especially of course for youth concussions so tom what symptoms should we look for like say we're at a football game or on this and we're in the stands or you know in my case i actually have the opportunity weekly to be on the sideline as the provider for our local high school and so I had to be very mindful of watching for signs of concussions. So can you remind some of the audience of what those are? Well, I, we certainly can. And first, I think it's also important for us to actually understand what the basic definition of a concussion is, which is a functional injury, not a structural injury. So when you are trying to make that distinction, obviously you can have a concussion in a lot of scenarios. But when you are talking about Basically, their cognitive or motor function has been disabled without a structural damage. That's when we're talking concussion. And that's what makes it uh, so hard to diagnose, right, Tom? I mean, because it's it, not something that you can necessarily see. You're going more off of the symptoms that you're seeing. Not You can't see it like a, a, like a fracture on an ankle. Yes. It's much more subjective, objective reasoning versus a lab test so that is one of the disadvantages and heck maybe someday they'll have some kind of lab test or something that we can do that's more definitive but for right now you're going to have to deal with some basic information some other things to know especially since you pointed out with high school youth are at a much higher risk than adults to get this so that's probably why you as a listener are going to hear us keep continually referring keep continually oh it's going to be a great episode ben well, we're going to continually refer to youth or, or high school athletes and below. Uh, one of the first things that I think people always think is loss of consciousness. And while that is definitely something we're going to cover here shortly as far as importance, only 10% of concussions have loss of consciousness linked to them directly. So it is very, very possible to have a concussion. Uh, it may be mild, but it's still going to be a concussion without a loss of consciousness. Another important thing to remember is that the symptoms in this can last a, a variety of range, a variety of times but usually you're going to be looking at a six to ten day time frame for symptoms of concussions so one of the things that you know ben pointed out is you're standing on the sideline you see one of those skull rock hard hits on the side of a football field first thing i would say that you need to see is what is their reaction getting up if it's a slow time to get up or they seem stunned or have poor, poor, blah, 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 poor motor control, much like my speaking right now, then you can be pretty sure that you're looking at a possible concussion. Yeah, and I've seen that on the sidelines several times. You're trying to watch all 22 players because not only are we watching our guys, we're trying to watch the other team to make sure that you know that we don't need to render assistance for them. You, you see some hard hits and you're like, okay, get up. And they will get up sometimes, and then other times they're real slow to get up, and you have to go out and kind of re, kind of do a quick assessment on that uh, individual. Because there's a big difference. Are they slow to get up because I got the air knocked out of them, or are they slow to get up because they physically are like not having control of their motor function? That's Those are types of things that it comes important for the clinician to be able to actually talk 
and see and be with the patient because it's really easy to make a, a determination right off the bat. Oh, they got the air knocked out of them. No big deal. But if they start having problems with functioning, you need to start trying to maybe go down a determination or a decision tree that you've already come up with of what you want to do. Another big, another big, big, big sign, memory loss. It can be retrograde or anterograde before or after the incident, but any sort of memory loss or and or confusion related to the incident is going to be a major sign that you're dealing with concussion and that, that kid needs to come out. And that's one of the things that we actually do ask on the sideline after we feel when we're assessing for a concussion is who are we playing and what's the score or what quarter are we in? Because most people who are not having signs of a concussion are going to be able to tell you that. Well, any decent football player should be able to tell you that. So You would hope so, yes. The bad news bears of football players are not going to be able to tell you that information. I did just get some information from Fact Checker Sam. They're actually, the FDA recently, as of February of this year, did approve a blood test to aid with concussion evaluation. It tests for two protein biomarkers that the brain is releasing into the blood within 12 hours of the head injury. I would say right now... Experts are cautious with this, and obviously this isn't something that's going to be in your every single hospital. But I do think, like you were saying earlier, they are making advancements to try to give us more than just the subjective and objective signs, but something real clinical data that we can use for concussions. Sam, the regional fact checker. They don't call him the best regional fact checker in this podcast for no reason, Ben. Sam's doing his job. Tom, what are some signs of concussions? So you're talking. you said the headache earlier confusion so another couple said these are going to be more post incident you might have some time maybe you've pulled off the field those immediate ones are going to be the stunned the memory loss poor motor control trouble with concentration etc let's say you get those okay we need to get them off the field for further evaluation some of the next things that you are really going to want to be checking for is immediate headache or and this was a, again, it's objective, subjective, you know, testing here, a fog. Is the person just not answering questions in an appropriate manner or time? Nausea and vomiting, that's always a favorite. And vision issues. If they're, like like I said, I pointed it out earlier, you can get a good bell ring in and all of a sudden you're like, hey, I'm having trouble seeing in color. You should know that that person has most likely had a concussion some of the other big signs now these are these aren't just signs those other ones i just talked about those are important to know we should all know those we should all be able to identify those however the next couple signs i'm going to go over these are your emergency signs these are your do not pass go do not collect 200 dollars. you go straight to an emergency room because something really bad is going on so some of those signs are going to be seizures loss of consciousness greater than one minute any neck injury associated with this and weakness or numbness in any extremities post-injury. Now, those are the immediate signs that you are having something that needs to be scanned or they need to be under possibly higher levels of care immediately. There are actually, been two signs of delayed concussion signs that are also emergency in nature. And these can be anywhere from that 6 to 10 day range post-injury. But if these happen... Or you're in the clinic and somebody says, my kid got hit you know, last Friday and now he's having these problems. You need to get them in for imaging or ER as, as soon as possible. And that's going to be nonstop crying. They have stopped the ability to have emotional restraint or control over their emotions and failure to thrive. Like a failure to eat. They have no interest in eating or drinking. 
there is some kind of chemical imbalance due to the functional damage from the concussion, and they need immediate care. You know, Tom, one of the first concussions that I took care of actually in the clinic was a work comp injury. It was a young lady who had cleaned some stuff, come up too, too soon, and struck her head on something on the wall. And when I went in and talked to her, I assessed her. Everything looked okay. I said, you know, I'm going to step out of the room for just a couple minutes, do some checking on some stuff. I went back into the room, and she's like, oh, hey, are you here to see me today? No recollection of the entire conversation that we had just had before that. To which point raised a red flag that, hmm, perhaps this young lady needs a CAT scan. <laughs> yeah, I would uh, say if somebody didn't remember talking to me and they sounded like 10-second Tom from uh, 40 or 51st Dates, you need to uh, get them into a uh, CT machine pretty quick. Yeah, she went straight from the office to CAT scan, and she ended up doing okay. I mean, there was nothing on the CAT scan. It was just a hell of a concussion, but you can never be too sure with, with some of those symptoms. And and that's a, another very good point is recovery, especially with proper recover or proper rest and treatment after identification of the concussion usually leads to very good outcomes. There is lots of very good outcomes with these. But that is also what we're going to go into talking about next is some of the important rules and safety measures that have been taken post-concussion for getting these young athletes or workers back into the job. So do you want to cover some stuff like the chalice rule? Well, the chalice rule is for children's head injuries because a lot of the times if you're in the clinic or if you're the provider in the ER and they come in and they say, my kids hit their head or whatever the case may be, you're damned if you do, damned if you don't, if you see TM. You know, if you don't see TM and they have something bad, you might as well write a check. And if you see TM and there's nothing bad, then you've just exposed that child to a shit ton of radiation that they potentially didn't need to. So they developed a chalice rule. This is the children's head injury algorithm for the prediction of important clinical events, C-H-A-L-I-C-E rule. And so it's based on any of the following criteria are present, then they recommend CT of the head. So if they had a witness loss of consciousness for greater than five minutes, if they have a history of amnesia of five minutes in duration, any abnormal drowsiness, greater than three vomits after the head injury, any suspicion of non-accidental injury, And then, like you said earlier, seizures after a head injury in a patient who has no history of epilepsy. If you're looking at, on the examination, a GCS less than 14, any suspicion of a penetrating or or depressed skull injury, signs of a basal skull fracture, any positive focal neurology, presence of bruising, swelling, or lacerations, greater than 5 centimeters if they're less than 1. And then for mechanism, if they're in a high-speed road, traffic accident, either pedestrian, cyclist, occupant, if they fell greater than three meters or a high-speed injury from a projectile or an object. So if any of those criteria are met, the recommendation is get a CT in the head. So that that brings up some really good other information that relates to the chalice rule or will make the chalice rule more applicable is if you're the witness to some of this, there are some major considerations that you can take into the care of this person, even if you're not doing direct care, and that's being a good witness to the incident. So some of the vital information that needs to go to the NPPA or MDDO, whoever is seeing this patient immediately, they're going to need to know the cause of the injury, the mechanism of injury, the force or blow and where it landed on the skull, loss of consciousness or time, how long they've had memory loss, 
seizures, and any previous concussions. Those are some of the vital information that those that those professionals are going to want to know. Or if you are the NP or PA getting this patient, that's what you're going to want to know. That's the first set of things that you're going to want to document. Also, pain meds. I know everyone wants to help out. Nobody wants to see anybody in pain. But pain medications can cover up or mask any of the possible uh, side effects of the injury. So you don't want to be guessing, is this because of concussion? Is this because of pain meds? And two, you don't want to give any sort of pain meds like NSAIDs or anything that can increase the risk of bleeding because if they do have bad head injury, we do not want to increase the chance of any sort of bleed. Yeah, no reason to speed the bleeding up, absolutely. Is that bad? I didn't, you know, the whole time I was in ER, I don't know if we were recovered if head bleeds are bad, so. It'd be a very short episode, but we could cover it with, yes. <laughs> there you go. We just covered two episodes at once, people. What more do you want? Nobel Peace Prize, that's what they want. No, that's what you want. And I deserve it. I found the two neurons that are related to Sudoku. Okay, so we've covered the signs and symptoms of concussions. We've covered when you need to CT a child's head and when not to if you're the you know, the clinician taking care of them. So let's say they have a concussion. What are some immediate steps that we need to take, Tom, to to help this person? So some of the first things that you can do is the beginning of the recovery phase. And to be completely honest, uh, through most of the research and stuff I've been able to find, the recovery phase... Or through the research, yeah, the research that I did on the recovery phase, state uh, makes it seem like treatment and recovery phase are pretty much uh, compatible terms. So if you hear me say one or the other, I'm talking about the same thing. The first thing you want to do is have the patient rest, and I don't mean just get them off the football field, I or hockey or girls tennis, whatever it is. It doesn't matter. Wherever it is, they need to be resting, and that means no stimulation, no television, no Facebook, no video games, no music. They need to be resting for a minimum of 24 hours. And that's the one, particularly in the office, whenever you know I see patients with concussions, and I tell them, "Hey, we need to do cognitive rest," and they're like, oh, "Okay, no problem. Yeah, I don't, you know, I don't have to go to school for for a day or two." I'm like, "No, I mean no video games." No Facebook, no text messages, no nothing that's going to stimulate your brain because your brain has an injury. We need to give it some time to heal. And they leave begrudgingly pissed off because I've told them they can't have their phone. They can't do anything other than just kind of chill out and give their brain some time. I guess that was the one good thing about not knowing that I had concussions is that when my parents let me stay home, I was just like, sweet. Here's some Nintendo, yo. And I got to watch all the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air that I wanted. But now, they're telling me I can't do any of that. And look how you turned out. Nobel Peace Prize winner, that's how I turned out. The second phase is going to be light activity. And this is the beginning of the return to normal baseline. However, it's exactly as it's implied. Light activity. They should only be doing... Basic functions, maybe they can go to school for half a day, but any sensitivity to light or long-term in front of a computer screen or something like that should actually still be avoided in the light activity phase. After we have done at least 24 hours, and, and that's generally the rule of thumb, Like it can obviously be extended, but each one of these phases is probably going to be in the 24-hour uh, time period. 
After that, you're going to want to enter phase three, which is moderate activity. At this point, you can start doing light aerobic activity, physical labor. Again, though, with the caveat that if there is a return of symptoms, they need to go back to the level below them. And after that is step four, which is going to be your final recovery phase. Phrase, my God, man. Actually, I want you to leave that in so people can make fun of me for saying phrase instead of phase four times. God, jeez. So anyways, regular phase, which is going to be basic return to normal activity. Full days of school. They can start using you know, their cell phone and computers at a normal rate. However, through this entire period, there is three things that are paramount to recovery. The first is sleep adequate amounts of sleep now obviously in steps one and two they need extended amounts of sleep they should be resting more than they normally do where three and four they can go back to regular rest when they're not sleeping they need to be not doing anything strenuous as you said before that's going to affect their brain chemistry whether they know it or not their brain needs to rest and finally nutrition Nutrition, nutrition, nutrition. And I don't mean Mountain Dew and Slim Jims, Oklahoma. I'm talking about actual nutrition that is going to be helping your patients out. Okay, That means your basic food pyramid that we all know, protein, carbohydrates, fats, etc. But in proper regulation or proper amounts, and these kids need to be resting, sleeping, and getting nutrition if they want their brains to actually heal. Yeah, and then once they kind of go through those phases, like you said, then it's they can be assessed by a medical provider, and some of that may depend on the state that you're in. Uh, for example, Kansas, I can pull someone off a field for signs of a concussion. I can assess them for their concussion, but in order to actually return them or release them to return to play, that has to be done in this state by an MD or DO. And then that's important to know you need to know what your state regulations on that are so kansas ohio may have the same rule but west virginia and florida maybe the np and pa can do all of it themselves uh i'm assuming states that have standard care agreements we are still going to be bound to dealing with what the md or do has the final say on that states worth independent practice you may want to double check, but you probably will be able to clear them on your own without further uh, physician oversight. So that law literally uh, in all 50 states, and it's modeled after the Zachary Lysted law, and if I mispronounce that, I sincerely apologize. This was actually a 13-year-old middle school child who suffered permanent brain injury because he was continued or allowed to play in a football game despite having the concussion. And like I said, so now that has been modeled across all 50 states, there's three components to this law. That is mandatory removal of any athlete confirmed or suspected concussion. And that's by coaches, medical staff, anybody. It's mandatory removal of that athlete. Clearance from a health, licensed health professional before the athlete can return to play. And like Tom said earlier, you need to know your state and know if that is can be a advanced practitioner, if that has to be an MD or DO. And then the last part of that law is annual education of coaches, parents, and athletes on the signs and symptoms of concussion. So once once you feel like you have seen the patient and that they're ready to start uh, return to play, there's actually a process that needs to be followed for the return to play protocol. The first is the patient needs to be off 
their meds. If they are been placed on any meds specific to the concussion or any injury related to the concussion, they are supposed to be off that medication. Second, they need to be returned to ba- they need to have returned to baseline, much unlike my ability to speak tonight. They need to be able to do anything and everything they were doing prior to the injury. Usually, again, each of these uh, steps are in 24-hour increments. So I'm going to go over the five phases of return to play. So you're looking at pretty much a minimum of a five-day cycle before that they can be even thought of for return to play. The first is no activity, 24 hours. Post-injury, no activity. The second is going to be light exercise which can be any sort of aerobic, sprints, whatever devious thing the coach can do to try and punish the kid for having a concussion. That's at least how my coaches would have handled it. Third is going to be sport-specific. Sport-specific exercise could be doing football drills without helmets or pads or any contact with other players, or if you're playing like tennis, you know, you could be doing serves, but you probably don't need to be doing full-on scrimmage matches. Fourth is going to be no contact. So even if you're playing a game like soccer, you can go out into the field, you can do some drills with the other players as long as there's no contact between player to player. And then finally is 24 hours of they have been able to do full contact, full drills, full sports participation without any return of signs or symptoms of the concussion. When they have met all five of those, then I believe that they are able to finally get back into what we'd say a stable rate and we can send them back into play yeah and i think a lot of that we were talking about with the zachary lasted law that annual education that education is for the parents and the coaches obviously but also for the student athletes themselves because when you're in high school and sometimes it feels like all that matters is friday nights and playing in that game and they're not thinking beyond the next game and they're not thinking of the rest of their life where they're going to have to deal with potentially chronic brain injuries because of the concussions that they've had so it's frustrating for them especially when you're telling them okay you're going to have to be out for probably two weeks you're going to miss the next game because you have a concussion this week but that is the way that things are now that's what we've learned over time and it's a safety issue are you telling me that you don't believe a 14 to 18 year old child is able to make decisions while they're upset that won't affect the rest of their lives? Pshaw, I say, sir. Pshaw. I understand, but yes, Tom, that's exactly what I'm saying. And I think I know what's going on tonight. I think Kyle, the sound engineer, has done something to my mic. And if there's any problems with my sound, Kyle, it is definitely Kyle's fault. Uh, we tried to give him a chance to move up from assistant fact checker from Sam, and obviously that was probably an egregious error at this point. So, Kyle's fault. So, Tom, the reason that we are so protective and with this return to play and making them take this time, and I do educate all of the students that I see with concussions, that I diagnose with concussions, or actually anybody for that matter, is a condition called second impact syndrome. And so what this is, is basically getting another injury to the brain before the brain has had time to recover. It basically can cause massive swelling of the brain and can be life-changing to the point of can cause paralysis. Uh, It can actually be fatal in some cases. So that's why we stress the importance of 
not getting repeated head injuries over and over, not beating your head against the brick wall, not taking those chair shots and wrestling, as you said I said it earlier. You did say it earlier. I'm going to have Kyle play it back for you uh, when we take a break here in a minute, but you said wrestling. But second impact syndrome is very is something very serious, and sometimes, particularly with parents in, in particular, when you stress the importance of that, then you get that further buy-in that you need for them to really force a lot of that cognitive rest and rest for those for their children. And again, I think the education is uh, a key aspect, especially I think good coaches don't want their athletes hurt, regardless of the sport or regardless of what's going on, or good supervisors for employees at work. If they get an employee that's hurt at work and they have a possible concussion, I truly believe most people want what's best. Before, we didn't know. But now we do. And so now getting that education out there, I think, is a key aspect to making sure that concussion and concussion recovery is just going to continue to get better as we go along. Yeah, this would be like 200 years ago when they didn't wash their hands and everybody died from infections that we spread from patient to patient. To now, all of a sudden, hey, hand washing is important. Maybe we should do that occasionally. Kind of a similar thing here with concussions. You know, we didn't know about concussions and CTE, which we didn't really cover tonight, but... A lot of the problems that we see with concussions later on in life, but we do we know about it now, and so now is when we need to take that action to ensure that we were, we're safe. Just like when doctors used to smoke in their offices while talking to their patients about asthma and the best, coolest, asbestos lined vest, like stuff like that, we know better about that now, right? That reminded me of the House of God book that. Just... Which, if you've never read that book, is an amazing book. I highly suggest it. The movie, I've watched it. It used to be on Netflix. It's not on Netflix anymore. Um, it is not. I actually found it on YouTube the other day. I'm not going to give the link out because I don't want it to be shut down, but there, the full movie is on YouTube also if you happen to want to go out and look for it. House of God classic. Uh, N-P-P-A-D-O-M-D does not matter. Even if you're not in the medical field and you're listening to us, trust me, House of God is a good one. But having talked about all this, there are some steps, there are some measures, and there is some technology that's coming about, Ben, uh, as we wrap up this episode that I think people need to be aware about NPs, PAs. We need to know that we can help our patients learn about to prevent future um, concussions. One of the big things, and I just learned about it myself tonight, was a new type of helmet called a Vicus Helmet. I think I'm pronouncing that right. V-I-C-I-S helmet. They are designing a new technology that they truly believe is going to help with reduction of concussions. And as a matter of fact, the United States military and Department of Defense is looking at adapting this Vicus technology into helmets for soldiers to reduce concussions and traumatic brain injury to soldiers, sailors, and Marines. And not only that, I think you're also seeing a lot of rule changes, both... Uh, I mean, if, you know, we're looking at sports, obviously, but with sports, you're seeing, you know, particularly like the NFL, they've gotten really good about watching for those hits to the head on defenseless receivers or even running backs or anybody with the ball and calling those, trying to prevent that. I know they're also working on teaching down into like the peewee leagues, proper tackling where they're not putting their head down. And I think it's actually called heads up teaching that is teaching them the proper way to to protect themselves and their head but still accomplish what they need to do which is tackling the ball carrier 
unlike that call on Clay Matthews in that Vikings game. This is getting a little far here, NFL. It's called physics. A 280-pound guy hits a quarterback, the guy's going to move around, okay? That was not rough. I'm not even a Green Bay fan, seriously. We're, we're getting a little far. I'm all about protecting people, just like you said, and I want to make sure I'm clear about that. People need to be protected as much as we can. But NFL, you got to watch us roughing the quarterback stuff. Seriously, it's getting out of hand. Are you putting them in flags next is my next question, Ben. That's What are they going to do next? Is it two-hand touch on quarterbacks? Well, it might be, but actually I did see a news story on that hit. The NFL is using that as the example of hits they do not want on the quarterback. They're not saying that he hit him helmet to helmet or anything like that. What they were calling that on was actually him picking him up and driving him into the ground. That was where the actual penalty came from. Yeah, that's what they said, and I don't care how many times you watch that. I don't even care if you're a Vikings fan. You cannot watch that and tell me Clay Matthews picked that. I've seen Clay Matthews pick dudes up and drive them into the ground. That was not Clay Matthews picking anyone up, nor was he driving them into the ground. But before we get off on that tangent, let's go ahead and wrap this episode up. We talked about the definition of what a concussion was, the important signs, including the emergency signs, which again, just if you don't take anything else away from, if you're the NP or PA and you hear anything about seizures, failure to thrive or eat, loss of consciousness, neck injuries, numbness or weakness, loss of motor function, etc., with a person with a head injury, you need to be thinking emergency. If I don't leave you with anything else... I hope you take that piece of information. And we've also covered for you guys some of the things you can do to help with treatment and recovery and some of the things that are going to be coming about hopefully in the future, though briefly covered, things that hopefully we'll do in the future to prevent concussions. Anything else you want to add, Tom? Just some podcast.com. Can I say that like three times fast like that? Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. I don't know. Can you? No, but if you can hear me just like that i want you to hear just some podcast.com but in your head like i'm saying sunday 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 really fast we also have instagram twitter and facebook even though we're still a little angry at facebook and i hope i don't get assassinated in my sleep tonight because of ben facebook still has a page for us i do want to segue off for just a second tom i want to go into a i'm going to channel my 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 tomness that is powerful and dangerous, my friend. I, I, I can do it. Here it comes. I want to go off on a rant for just a minute. I listened to a podcast the other day from the NP dude. It was actually his most his most recent episode. I don't know if you've had a chance to listen to it yet or not, Tom. It's episode 146 for anybody who's paying attention. It's the developments within the ACCNP, which was the organization that several nurse practitioners had started. Uh, they got a cease and desist letter from AANP. And he went into detail about what the ACCNP was kind of trying to do and what they're going to continue to do, albeit apparently under a different name because of the cease and desist. But it's basically trying to improve the educational experience for nurse practitioners. And I truly don't understand why that's a bad thing. Why, why would you not want to improve the educational experience for people who are taking care of people and saving lives, and making those life-and-death decisions, why would you not want to be on board with improving 
the education. Well, I haven't listened to that episode, but clearly now I'm going to. And I smell an even more important topic that we need to cover probably soon for all advanced practitioners, which is something that's near and dear to my heart. I know Ben has had me rant multiple times on this. It, it is our education. And why is this not being taken more importantly by some of our recognizing bodies or our, our certifying bodies? And what are we going to do about it as advanced practitioners, uh, nurse practitioners of PAs? I would love to hear some from some PAs on what your guys' stance on this is. But I know within the NP world, myself included, I really feel that there are some major changes that need to be happening. No, I agree. None of us went to NP school to be doctors. Uh, none of us, I don't... If you say you're you, you're an MD or a DO and you're on that same level, yes, we practice in the same settings. There is an educational difference, certainly. Certainly, <laughs> yes. But... There needs to be something to help improve the education that nurse practitioners are getting to where we're not getting these diploma mill schools who are just generating thousands and thousands and thousands of nurse practitioners that aren't ready to take care of people. You should not be able, and this is my personal stance, and so I will take any hate mail that people want to send to me. You should not be able to be an 18-year-old, graduate from high school, go to four years of nursing school, get your RN, never work a fucking day on the floor, and then start nurse practitioner school. Amen. I think there needs to be hours and education requirements mandated by, by any school that is going to be certifying nurse practitioners that says this person has a minimum of, we'll say, 5,000 hours. I don't know. I don't have a magic number. That's just the one I've always thrown around. You have to be a nurse 5,000 hours before you can even go to nurse practitioner school. We are doing a disservice to ourselves, to our colleagues, to other healthcare professionals, and to our patients when we say that you're going to be an advanced practice registered nurse without ever being a registered nurse. That you're going to be taking care of patients without the ability to do any of the things that you're going to order someone else to do. And I know someone's going to be, well, doctors, this, doctors, that. We are not doctors. All right. Uh, I like our doctor brothers and sisters. We are not them. So do not take the argument to what other people are doing. We need to be focusing on what we're doing. Ben is correct. I think I am correct, and I think there is a lot of nurse practitioners out there that feel the exact same way we do, including PAs. I think there's a lot of PAs out there that feel the same way we do, that this has become a money scheme for some schools. I believe there are schools out there that have education at the core of their mission, and they want to do the best. I also believe there are diploma mills, and not only does this hurt us as a profession in the taking care of patient realm, but when you kick out 10,000 extra nurse practitioners a year that aren't qualified, what happens when they start hurting patients? We all go down. What happens when they dilute the market? We all go down. When the supply is greater than the demand, guess what happens? We all go down. If we do not take a hold of this ship and write it, we are going to go down hard, and we will have no one to blame but ourselves. I will be fine, because I will have a Nobel Peace Prize by that point. But you guys that are listening may want to heed the warning. So I just want to say to the NP dude, I listened. 
I'm on board. I think we definitely need to do something to try to improve the education. Certainly reach out to me if you want. We can discuss it further. And again, I'm not placing any blame on any specific school or anything along those lines. I'm just saying that some of this onus to generate a higher quality nurse practitioner needs to fall back on some of the schools. Yes, not just the schools, us as a profession. AANP, ANCC, ANA, I hope you're listening, or somebody is. You guys are the ones that are the regulating and certifying bodies for nurse practitioners and nursing in America. You need to be doing something about it. Instead of spending time and saying, oh, well, everyone needs to get a higher degree to be a better nurse. How about we actually focus on being a freaking nurse? How about we do that? How about we get that down pat? And when that person has got their education and their experience and their time in and they've proven themselves to be a nurse, then they've earned the right to become a nurse practitioner. That's why it's called an advanced practice registered nurse because we're advancing the practice or being advanced in our practice of being a registered nurse. The The whole thought that, like Ben said, and I couldn't have said it better myself, that someone is 18 years old, have never dealt with patient care, and now they're suddenly going to NP school is beyond me. I think there needs to be standards. I think there needs to be regulations. And if we don't, if we don't take care of this, eventually it's going to take care of us. And that's just how it is. And these are the cases that physicians are talking about whenever they screenshot stuff and post it in groups that they're in. Are these people who don't have significant experience or who are on Facebook groups asking stupid questions? And I don't... If you truly don't know, I understand reaching out to your resources. I get that. I really do. But you're you're making the entire profession look bad. Yeah, guys. So I am still fairly new to the nurse practitioner world myself. I do a lot of resource checking. Um, I do a lot of time checking, you know, up-to-date CDC, if there's available uh, colleagues. I am not saying by any means that we should not be doing that there is a vast world knowledge at our fingertips and we should be applying it that on the other hand is not the same as saying hey i had a patient that had high blood pressure what should i treat him with if you one don't know the basics where to start looking or two know how to look it up yourselves then perhaps three you shouldn't be treating that patient preach it brother tom See, I channeled my Tomness, and I feel better now. I got it out. We may not have any listeners at this. We may have pissed off the entire advanced practitioner oh. community with this. No, no, there's, there's going to be that one anesthesiologist at Florida State. He's going to be listening to us now. That's for sure. But that's another good point to bring up. We all, I shouldn't say we all, the majority of us that are advanced practitioners, we work with MDs and DOs. We work with these guys. I don't want to be an MD or DO. That's why I chose to become an NP. If you think you're at that level simply because you can write a prescription, then you are misunderstanding the entire evaluation of what we are supposed to be doing as a profession. And there's a lot of ways to go with this, and I don't want to get into a philosophical debate about that. Well, that's wrong. I do. But this is not the right time or place nor episode to do it. I'm just saying I think Ben's right. And perhaps very soon we need to do an episode on this. I mean, it'll be conjecture and what we think, but maybe that's what we need to be doing. And don't misunderstand what we're saying by any means. Tom and I are not saying that nurse practitioners or PAs 
or, or anybody in the advanced practice, mid-level, whatever you want to call them. I know some people find the term mid-level offensive, and I get it, okay. But nobody's saying that we don't provide quality care. That's that's not what we're saying. We're not. I'm not saying because we're not doctors that we're not providing the quality care that we do provide. I have patients frequently switch to me from MDs or DOs because they feel like they're listened to more, and that's that's a subjective thing from patients. So we have a very good skill set. We need to be able to use that, but a lot of that comes from building that knowledge base from being a nurse and building upon that with the advanced education part. And perhaps Ben clarified for me uh, what I was trying to say. If, if it didn't come across that way, I cannot say enough how happy I am that I became a nurse, that I've become an, a family nurse practitioner, that I think we all do a great job. I've worked with great PAs. I've worked with great nurse practitioners. But it has become our responsibility to take care of this. And I think ultimately that's that's the question is what are we going to do about it? So if you do have an opinion about what we said, please reach out to us on our social media that we have said multiple times, so I'm not even going to say it again, nor could I because Kyle, the sound engineer, has messed with my microphone. Ben, I think I'm pretty much tapped out for tonight's episode. Yeah, me too. That The, the, the Tomness was very wearing upon me. I told you, it is a powerful weapon, but it is dangerous. It can really uh, take you down if you're not careful. So, Tom, do you know what our next episode is on? Well, you know, we still have a couple things up in the air, but I really think we are leaning towards autism, which was a feedback from a listener who got out to us and said, hey, I would like to hear more about this, and I want you guys to know we do listen. If you make suggestions or you contact us and you say, hey, this is what we want to do, or you have a question, we will get back to you, or we will try to incorporate it into the show. Uh, if something comes up, obviously that's timely or something like that that we need to cover first. We will, but I know as of right now, that's what we're working on is an episode in autism. Flu season. Getting shut down by Facebook. After my rant, we may get shut down by the AANP. I don't know. We'll see. Bring it on. You know what? I would love to see that fight. So. <laughs> well, they, well, never mind. I'm not going to go into it. Um, <laughs> So yeah, the plan right now is the next episode's going to be on autism. So if you have any questions, get hold of us. Join our group. We're going to, I hope, Tom, I think we're going to jump on Facebook for a few minutes tonight just to kind of give them some extra content, exclusive content that we may not give on the podcast because we want you to turn into our groups. And also, I think once, I think Tom and I talked, once we hit uh, like 250 members in the group, then we're going to do a very special episode on the history of a piece of equipment that we use uh, pretty frequently. And if you think back to very special episodes like, you know, the the Different Strokes very special episode of The Bike Shop or How About Saved by the Bell with Jesse in the very special episode of Getting Hooked on Caffeine Pills, you know, that's kind of what we're going to do. So we're going to do that completely separate from the normal weekly podcast. We're going to throw free episodes, extra episodes out to you. We have people who are saying, hey, we want to hear more. We want to hear more frequency. Join our group. Get those numbers up, and we'll give you some extra episodes. Roger that. And I think that's it for me tonight. So Tom is signing off. This has been signing off. Have a great week.